So we're starting this new series for our uh, Easter resurrection season. And this is a three-week series that we're starting, and it's entitled Before Calvary. We actually did something similar to this during Christmas, and it was before Bethlehem. And this time we're looking at Before Calvary, which is really exciting because I really love to um, read the different stories in the Old Testament and um, just look at the parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament, so it's really exciting to, to start this series. But what we're going to be looking at is this very strange and shocking, heavy emphasis on sacrifice, especially sacrifice in the Old Testament where animal sacrifice was required, shockingly required by God and to him alone. Um, there's a scripture in Exodus 22:20 20 that says that sacrifice was to be made to God alone. So for modern people, for us today, the idea of sacrifice is very, very strange. But for ancient people, sacrifice was a part of everyday life. And for some pagan worshipers, that involved human sacrifice. Now, human sacrifice is just absolutely repulsive to God. And it was strongly, strongly condemned um, in the Old Testament because it primarily associated it was associated with the worship of like pagan deity and um, involved child sacrifice. But for God's people in the Old Testament, the children of Israel, as they were called, um, sacrifice involved animal sacrifice. And interestingly enough, that at the very center of biblical faith is the bloody death of a helpless victim. Jesus Christ himself. But the question is, why? Why would God require this animal sacrifice? So I thought we'd start with the post-garden experience of Adam and Eve and their sons, Cain and Abel. So in Genesis chapter 4, um, verses 1 and 2, and, and this interpretation I'm reading is actually from the New King James Version, but it says, Now Adam knew, his, knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. In the New Living Translation, the next verses, 3 through 5, reads, When they grew up, Abel became a shepherd, while Cain cultivated the ground, he essentially became like an agriculturist or a farmer. And when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord, and Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. So here we have two brothers offering a sacrifice to the Lord. One came, brought, you know, from you know, the, the harvest of the ground. He was all agriculturist, this farmer, and so he, you know, planted seed and he, you know, received a crop, and so whatever fruit or vegetable it was, he offered some of that to God. And then Abel, however, because he was a shepherd, offered the best of the firstborn lambs from his flock emphasizing the worth and the cost of that sacrifice. 
the firstborn lamb, foreshadowing, if I read it, foreshadowing the lamb of God as the best and the firstborn over all creation, which as we know is the ultimate acceptable and final, final sacrifice once and for all. So if you read on in the story, you'll see that God accepted, you know, Abel's sacrifice, rejected Cain's. But what does that really reveal about the character and the purpose and the plan of God? Hebrews 9.22 says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. There's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And Hebrews 9, 18 through 22, in the Message Bible it reads, Even the first plan required a death to set it in motion. After Moses had read out all the terms of the plan of the law, God's will, he took the blood of sacrificed animals and in a solemn ritual sprinkled the document and the people who were its beneficiaries. And then he attested its validity with the words, This is the blood of the covenant commanded by God. He did the same with the place of worship and its furniture. Moses said to the people, this is the blood of the covenant God has established with you. Practically everything in a will hinges on a death. That's why blood, the evidence of death, is used so much in our tradition, especially regarding forgiveness of sins. So this pattern of animal sacrifice or the shedding of blood was later inherited by Noah and Abraham. So we see it first with Cain and Abel after Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. We see this, you know, this blood sacrifice that Abel offers. And then we see that it's inherited by Noah after the flood, after he leaves the ark, and then later inherited by Abraham. And oddly enough, God asks Abraham to do something unthinkable. So I'm going to invite Heather to come up. She's going to read Genesis 22, 9-14, and we're going to look at Abraham's situation. Alright, Genesis 22, starting in verse 9. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Don't hurt him in any way. For now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by his horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Thank you for reading that. So I, one of the things that really stuck, stuck out to me, I mean, there's just so much to unpack in that, in that story. There's a lot to unpack there. But one of the things I really love about 
that story is um, when you read in the King James Version that verse 22, 14, the Lord will provide, there's a translation that says that the place was called Jehovah Jireh. And there's a, like a ton of songs that have that title um, and the meaning that the Lord will provide like a substitute, his provision. And I just love that we see from the very, very beginning that God was going to provide a substitute, a substitute sacrifice that would settle once and for all the issue of sacrifice or the, the offering. Like there wouldn't be something that we would ever have to do or need to do again because you know, at the end of the day, animal sacrifice just wouldn't be enough. Do you have any thoughts on that? very grateful that we don't have to do animal sacrifices anymore. <laughs> um, but I love that God, you know, sometimes we think that Jesus was plan B, you know, and that, <clears throat> that somehow God made a mistake and um, we went through all this time and God's like, oh, I got to figure out a way to fix this, you know. And But it's clear to me, you know, through seeing the repetition of of the sacrifices and of the lamb, these references throughout the Old Testament, it's, it's clear that, that God had this plan from the beginning and um, that he was teaching us along the way and he was revealing pieces of that that we would not understand until later. Um, and when you really think about what is required for us to be holy enough to be in God's presence, um, but we can never accomplish that on our own, you know, and that a sacrifice is needed for us to be able to, to even approach God, to even be able to talk to God, to be able to be, able to be in his presence. We feel like we don't really comprehend that because we've sort of always had that access because, through Jesus. Um, but being able to just study the Old Testament and study the old the things that happened that led up to that really help us to understand what was required and, and why Jesus had to make that sacrifice for us. Yes. Yeah, and I, I really love that in that not only did God provide Jesus and he provided himself, but he was our substitute. Because honestly, it should have been us up there on the cross. But Jesus was our substitute and took our place, and he provided that for us. So I thank God for that. We're gonna ask Pastor Mike to join that conversation. I almost hate to join the conversation like I'm interrupting. <laughs> I'm just being interested to everybody you guys' conversation is so awesome. Um, the thing that just perplexes me uh, to, from one end to the other is what Abraham must have been feeling when he was being called by God to do these strange, weird, mysterious things like leaving his homeland and going to a place that he had never been to before and planting a new people when his wife and he were both too old to have children and God ridiculously promises them a child and this huge uh, table of descendants that would come after them that would be a blessing to the whole world. Abraham was just called step by step into these weird, ridiculous promises. 
And as he was called in, in each one of them, it was an opportunity for his faith to be tested, wouldn't you say? And so when he was in the middle of this, uh, this, this story that Heather read about in the scripture today, he had to be the most perplexed of all because the promise that had been made to him, uh, that had been given to him, uh, had to do with his son. His son Isaac was the one that was the result of one of the first promises to Abraham. And that idea that Abraham couldn't have children, he was too old to have children, his wife was too old to have children, she was 90 years old. Can you imagine a 90-year-old that you know having a baby? Isn't it hard enough when you're 30 to keep up with a baby, but to be 90 and to be winding up your life and to have a newborn child? But they had one. God made good on that promise and showed them that he was trustworthy. But then God comes around and puts Abraham to the ultimate test. He not only wants Abraham to go to this place, Moriah, to perform a sacrifice where animal sacrifice was very much the norm of the day. Their culture was uh, uh, steeped in animal sacrifice. But God wanted him to take the life of his own son, the one who was the child of the promise. And can you imagine the, the struggle that Abraham would have had in trusting God in that moment? Because the people of God don't sacrifice babies. Pagans do that. So why would God set Abraham up to take the life of his own child in God's name? And as you read that Bible story, read through that scripture, you see that uh, Abraham is perplexed. And as he goes through there, he's pained and he's trying to lead his child to the next step where he's going to actually lay his child on that altar and give his child the knife that was intended to be given to a sacrificial lamb. Uh, think about, if you have children, think about what it's like to lead your child to the next step of getting ready to go to school. You have to get your kid up in the morning, feed him or her breakfast, get them dressed, and either to the bus or in the car or walking to school. And how difficult that must be. Can you imagine if you had to lead your child to the altar to lay him or her down without him or her really knowing and then to raise a knife over them, knowing that it was your God that you love and trust who was calling you to do that. Can you imagine what that would feel like? This was the face of Abraham. This was his uh, being perplexed before God. And do you ever find yourself in those shoes? Do you find yourself in the shoes of Abraham where something that God has provided for you has given to you out of love, he might now be calling you to sacrifice, to give up, to lay down, to lose, or to be rid of in his name. And how perplexing and how difficult that feels at the moment. If you've ever felt that way, then something is twinging, a twinging a chord inside your heart right now. Yeah, I've been there before. Why would God do such a thing? with his people that he loves? Why would he call Abraham to give up that son where he would lose that son that was promised to him? A son through whom, by the way, 
God had promised to bless the whole world. Is God a trickster? Is God playing some sick joke? And when you find yourself in those shoes where you look at the blessings you have and you may be on the verge of losing them, even down to your own flesh and blood, let's say if you have a, an illness that develops like cancer, the promises of God don't seem to hold up to the scariness of an unknown future, do they? But that's exactly where God wants us. And it's exactly where he wanted Abraham. The beautiful, um, crazy, mysterious part of the story that unfolds and uh, deals so much with our hearts is the idea of death being the price of sin. Now, as we get into the Easter season, we talk about Jesus going to the cross. What we want to do is open ourselves up, open our minds up to the idea that the cerebral knowledge, the academic knowledge of Jesus going to the cross is not enough. The academic mere knowing that Jesus went to the cross is not enough for you. It was never intended to be enough. And yet, generations of Christians all over the world still believe that it is. There's something deeper, something more uh, base, something more at the bottom of the heart that God is getting to when he deals with the idea of us being replaced on the cross with a sacrificial lamb like Jesus. The idea develops right out of the trust that we place in God to remove the penalty for our sin. Now in our heads, in the academic way, we know that Jesus went to the cross for you and me for what reason? Why did he go there? He loved us, right? And why would there need to be someone to go to the cross for us? Why is that? Because the wages of sin is death. And death is evidenced in ancient cultures by what? The shedding of blood. So God needed to demonstrate for all people of all time in a way that could be understood across all cultures that a break with God, sin between me and a holy God that cannot live and abide around sin, would require a death. That death should be mine. And the evidence of that should be the shedding of my blood. So it shouldn't be where I simply lay down on a table and I'm injected with a lethal injection and I fall asleep. It's where my blood needed to be shed so that the whole world, past, present, and future, could understand that I am really what? When my blood is let out of my body. Dead. And that that death is the only thing that can satisfy a holy God for my sin. That's a pretty universal understanding across all cultures, Christian or not. That sin costs a life. But with Abraham, Abraham knew that his faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. He knew that God had forgiven him because of his faith. See, Abraham trusted in a Messiah that wasn't even born yet. A Messiah that would be sacrificed in his place. So why would a perfect and holy God require Abraham's son of him? I want to share a scripture with you from Hebrews 11. It goes like this. 
It was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, was ready to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, even though God had told him, look at this, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, check this out. I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Abraham reasoned that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. I, Abraham knew that even if he had to plunge the knife into the chest of his only child, that God had the power to raise him up to life again. That is the kind of faith that Abraham had. I don't know if I've got that kind of faith. Could I do that? I don't think so. That's what Abraham was called to do. And that is the faith that he approached that task with. The idea that God was powerful enough to raise the dead and so God would surely bring his son back to life. You know, that's like you and me, folks. That's like us before a holy God. We think, God, if I have to give this up, if i got to do this, I'm going to put myself on that altar and I'm going to give myself over to faith in you because I know that you can bring me back. You can give me back what I need. Just like Job had all his stuff and his people taken away, God could give all that back in extra measure. Sometimes I'm tempted to think that that's how God operates. But what did God do? He sent something in the place of his son. The ram caught in the thicket. Did you ever think about how the ram was caught? He was caught by the head in some thorns. Did you ever think about that? That makes me want to cry when I think about that. I think about my Savior. Jesus, whose head was caught in thorns, was placed on a Roman cross, wasn't laid down on a comfy bed and given a shot. He was nailed with railroad ties this long for me. I think about his name, and I think about who he is. I think about how his father, Jehovah Jireh, Yahweh, Yira, provides. I'm overwhelmed by that. See, we have a God who substitutes things. He substitutes a life for a life, a death for a death. He makes things come to life that seem already dead and in fact spiritually are dead from the inside out. And as Abraham carried the sticks and led his son to the mountain where he would perform that sacrifice. He's got to be struggling on the inside, just like you and I do today. But something he learned in the end, something he knew in the end when he came out of that situation, is that God acts and moves on behalf of those he loves. He brought Isaac back again from death, not by taking the wound out of Isaac's chest, but by giving a sacrifice, a substitute instead, by switching something out. And in doing that, he redeemed the loss that Abraham would have had. 
The concept of redemption is this, that God buys back what he takes away. The firstborn in that culture belonged to God. God claimed in the law the firstborn children of all living things. If you think about the story of Egypt and how all the firstborn in Egypt died by the tenth plague, do you remember that story? The reason is, is because it wasn't just the firstborn of Israel that God called to himself in the law, but it was also the firstborn of all the world including those firstborn of the Egyptians, which is why Pharaoh lost his firstborn son. The blood of the firstborn pays for the sins of the entire family. Think about that for you. The blood of God's firstborn pays for your sins and mine. So what does that make us? God's family. If that blood applies to you, and through faith it does, then you become God's child when Jesus goes to the cross. That's for people before Jesus was born, like Abraham. That's for people around Jesus' time. And that's for people who were born well after Jesus was born, like you and me. Because God knows you. He knows you. He knows how you are. He knows what makes you tick, how you think, what you feel. He knows what it is that will satisfy His holiness and in the same moment will change your heart to help you to understand who it is you really are. You are His. And there's nothing that He wouldn't do to win your heart into his family. Now, as a Christian, there may be times when you feel like God is holding you up, like God is holding you back, like there's something in your life that God is not allowing you to experience. There's something that God isn't giving you that maybe you feel like he promised you. Maybe it's health and wealth and prosperity, children, a job a future, something that you know belongs to you because of Jesus. Maybe in those moments, what God is doing is he's helping you and me to remember that God is a God of substitutions. He's a God of sacrifice. But he's not a God of sacrifice of you. He's a God of sacrifice of Jesus for you. And when Jesus goes to the cross, the sacrifice and the substitution that is made there is not just one way, my friend. It's not just you should have been on the cross. It's also that you are now inhabited by the Son of God Himself. It's a two-way street. Substitution means that something happens on both ends. And when you look at Jesus and see yourself on the cross in his place, you can also look at Jesus walking around in everyday life and see who? Yourself. 
you are the one who occupy, occupies his place on the ground, walking around, living, breathing air in this life every single day, looking for purpose and for a reason to live. The purpose and the reason to live is the same Jesus who hung upon the cross. We are so excited for this series before Calvary. Because what it does is it shows the kind of power substitutionary living can have in your life. Have you ever thought about the backside of the gospel? The side that has Jesus coming down off the cross and rising again from the grave and walking around for weeks teaching his students how to be like him. Have you ever thought about yourself in those shoes? That's what the power of the backside of the gospel means. And for this series, which is going to kind of come to its head and, and give birth to a new understanding on Easter morning, that's what we're excited for. We're excited to see God work in your life in a new way, to show you new things, to prepare you for new life where you're not sacrificing an Isaac on an altar in anticipation of God's power bringing him back from the dead. You're looking for that ram in the thorns. His name is Jesus. Would you pray with me? Dear God, you are so powerful and so mighty and so awesome. You are a God of substitutes. Would you call me to see the ram in the thicket, to see the crown of thorns that he bears, and to remember the Jesus who wore that same crown, the same crown of thorns as the ram sacrifice of Abraham. Jesus is the one caught in the thicket, but not by accident, on purpose. God, there are times when I just forget completely about that ram and I think about what's lying in front of me on the altar. I confess that to you and I confess my nearsightedness in those moments. Let me look beyond the altar you called me to in life and look to the ram. Look to his name, Jesus, and trust in him for what he did and for what he does to this day. We pray and trust in you. Because yes, you are God of sacrifice. But that was a self-sacrifice on your part. For me and for all those that you call. In your name we pray and together we say, Amen and Amen.